Well, good evening to you all. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure and a joy to be with you and to worship with you, but uh, especially humbling and an honor to be able to bring the, the Word of God to you. Uh, turn with me, or swipe or tap. Uh, I was going to say if you're backslidden, or uh, I guess if you're just tech-savvy, more tech-savvy. Uh, but turn with me to, uh, to Acts, the book of Acts, and to chapter 15. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, at our church, we're currently reading through the book of Acts for our, uh, we always read through a book of the Bible consecutively in our morning worship service. And, and right now we've been reading through the book of, of Acts. And, uh, and I regularly remind our congregation that while this book is, is normally entitled the Acts of the Apostles, uh, that really uh, a, a more appropriate title, if a little bit lengthier, maybe a Puritan kind of title, uh, would be the Acts of the Risen and Ascended Christ by His Spirit in and through his church, <laughs> because that's really what we're reading when we read the book of Acts. And Luke tells us that right up front. If you uh, look at the very first page, uh, first verse of, of Acts, uh, he writes, in, in the first book, in the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And the, the implication there being that what he's writing about now in his second book is everything that Jesus continues to do and to teach, uh, what he's continuing to doing, again, by his, his spirit in and through his church, right? Even though Christ is taken up into heaven in the very first chapter, the first 11 verses or so, that this book really is about all that Jesus continues to do and to teach by his Holy Spirit, who descends in chapter 2, in and through his church. Um, and yes, Jesus, even to this day, continues to do and to teach by his Spirit in and through his church. And one instance of something that Jesus continued to do and to teach by his Spirit in and through his church is recorded for us here in Acts chapter 15 in what is commonly called the Jerusalem Council, but which are particular Baptist forefathers in our confession view as one of the prime scriptural examples of early church associationalism. Uh, so let's read part of this passage now. It's, uh, again, the, the whole text ranges basically down to verse 35, uh, but let's just read the first six verses and then we'll pick up in verse 22. So we'll read the word of God with me. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and spoke to them. And then pick up in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, 
although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. We'll conclude the reading there. Uh, Let's pray briefly. Our Father, uh, our risen and ascended and exalted and reigning Savior Jesus Christ, continue now to do and to teach your church by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and through its proclamation. We pray for your glory. Amen. Well, I and and many of your pastors, I know, have been thinking a lot recently about associationalism over the the past few months and, and even years. Uh, Some of you might know we recently made some uh, revisions to our association's constitution, and we're considering making a few more, potentially, to expand participation in in SCAR BC. But but in these discussions, one point that has been brought up again and again, and has already been brought up tonight, uh, is how unique and distinctive and precious is what we are experiencing right now. It's unique to us, really. It is, it's distinctive to us, even more so, and it is precious to us. Our, our long-standing practice of quarterly gatherings, you know, of regular face-to-face meetings, not just between our pastors, but between our congregations, among our members, not just to conduct business either, but to, to engage in worship. And, and this is something, again, that we, we recently have been reminding ourselves really is, we believe, central to our identity and to our functioning as an association, uh, that not only do our officers know and love one another, but our members know and love one another. Now, that is rare, and as I said, it is, it is precious. Uh, after the church here in, in Hemet invited me to preach here at this quarterly, and as Pastor Anity and I were uh, discussing some of what might be of benefit for me to preach on, uh, I decided to address this subject, uh, which I believe has been entitled Association and You. Now, I know that sounds kind of cheesy, right? Every organization, you want to you know, have some rally the troops kind of uh, meeting, and so this organization and you, you're a vital part of this association. Uh, but it is something that uh, I, I hope will be of benefit to us because, again, this subject of, of you, you know, the, the, the individual church member, and your relationship to this association of churches. Because, again, as as unique and wonderful as our association and our situation here in Southern California is, uh, I I think that there still definitely can be a a bit of a disconnect, a a feeling of uh, distance there, right? The sense that that I, I really, as just a member of a church, you know, you could use the term layman, we don't use that term very often, uh, but as a, a common member of my church, I don't really bear any direct relationship to the association. Uh, that's just something my pastor or my pastors deal with. And, and yes, while really in virtue of simple logistical and operational matters, we, we do conduct the business of the association primarily through church messengers, representatives, normally our our church officers. Nevertheless, I I do pray that there'll be some benefit to us all in considering the subject of of association and 
you. And we'll do so primarily through this lens of, of Acts 15. Uh, as I said, Acts 15 is a, is a foundational uh, passage in the scriptures for the practice of interchurch associationalism. Uh, if you happen to have with you a copy of your confession, you can see that in chapter 26, paragraph 15, where the practice of what we really now call associationalism is described, the primary proof texts given there are from Acts 15. Acts 15, all throughout Acts 15, verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 22, 23, 25, and it's used to, to illustrate various details, as you can imagine, and we just read through this, uh, various details of church, churches meeting together by messengers, considering, discussing, giving advice, and then reporting back to, to the churches. And again, because Acts is the record of all that Jesus Christ continues to do and to teach by his Spirit in and through his church, uh, our confession can appeal to this chapter and conclude that such associationalism is according to the mind of Christ. It's according to the mind of Christ, because this is what Christ is continuing to do. But I would like also to use this passage uh, tonight to illustrate a few aspects, again, of your relationship to our association. Uh, this is for me, a very different type of sermon than I normally preach. Uh, I won't be going just kind of verse by verse, giving a full exposition of this passage. I'm probably going to leave you with some questions at the end. You can ask me later if you want to get into those. Uh, but really, just to, to use it, uh, I guess, uh, as, as some authors would say, kind of gleanings from this passage, gleanings with a particular subject, a particular point in mind. And again, that of your relationship to our association. Uh, very simply, I'd like to see here the, the need for association. And again, for you, for the church member, then the benefits of association. Again, for you. And finally, the responsibilities of association. Again, for you. Uh, so we'll begin then with, uh, as I said, the need for association. For you. Uh, your need for association. Why do you need an association? Uh, not just your church or your pastor, but you as an individual church member. Well, I, I believe we're given that pretty clearly just in the first two verses of, of Acts 15. Read those again. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, right? The brothers is, is the whole church, all of the members of the church. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Right, so the, the, the setting here, of course, is the church in Syrian Antioch uh, that we read of a few chapters before where the disciples were first called Christians. And I think that that's, uh, that's important. This is uh, kind of where the church uh, begins to take on a very distinct identity from Judaism. Uh, and they do that because the church in Antioch was the first church to include a significant number of Gentile converts, of converts who didn't grow up in Judaism and weren't practicing all of those aspects of, of Jewish life. Uh, Barnabas had brought Paul here to the church in Antioch, and from this church they had been sent out on the first missionary journey, which is just completed. When Paul and Barnabas then returned to this church to report on their labors, then we read this situation arises. Some men from Judea, uh, Jews, again at least claiming to be Christians, they come to Antioch and they begin teaching the need for circumcision and for observation of other aspects of the Mosaic ceremonial law, right? And they say, unless you, brothers, you, members of this church, are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Uh, this begins to cause trouble within the church. Paul and, and Barnabas argue with them. 
But apparently, even at this point in his, uh, in his ministry, Paul and Barnabas, Paul even, uh, couldn't settle this matter conclusively, at least for some. And so it's decided by, again, the church, the church as a whole, uh, it's decided that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others travel to Jerusalem to bring this matter to the apostles and the elders who are there. Uh, some of the believers, then we read later, in, in the Jerusalem church, uh, uh, surprise, surprise, who had belonged to the Pharisees, right? So they had been that particular kind of, of Jew before making a profession of faith in Christ. But some of the believers in Jerusalem them also agree with what we come to know later as Judaizers, uh, saying, as it says there in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them, the, the Gentile converts, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the issue, again, isn't easily settled. It becomes even a matter for much debate among the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. Now, all of this to say that this question that arises, this teaching that comes to the church in Antioch and is agreed with by some of the brothers in the church in Jerusalem, it was no minor, obvious, or obscure point of theological fineness. It's, it's not minor, it's not obvious to the church at this time, and it's not obscure. Right? It's, it's common sometimes for this debate now uh, that, that leads to the Jerusalem Council to be called a, a doctrinal dispute. And uh, the implication sometimes then is that it, it didn't really have any concrete practical effects or implications for the people in these churches. Now, of course, we know that's never the case with any theological dispute, with any doctrinal difference, uh, that theological disputes remain locked in an ivory tower, that they don't eventually trickle down and, and affect the, the, the man on the street. Uh, as the saying goes, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. And we know that. Some of us have experienced it. Many of us have, have seen that. And it's easy to see how this false teaching in particular would indeed hurt people, would hurt the, the common member of these churches, and particularly the church in, in Antioch. Here you have a whole class of new believers who are at risk of being entirely disenfranchised, right? The, these Gentile Christians were essentially being taught that they were not truly saved, or that they were living in violation to the law of God, that they could not become Christians unless they first became Jews, in essence. Or if they can become Christians, then they have to now live as Jews, according to the, the ceremonial law of Moses. And again, it doesn't take much imagination to surmise what a, what a danger this would be to the unity of these churches, to the advance of the early Christian movement as a whole, and to the spiritual well-being of individual believers who were being told this. Depending on which side of the debate prevailed, true Christians in these churches, members of these churches, could be marginalized at best or illegitimately disciplined, even excommunicated at worst. Now, I know that it's also easy for us here 2,000 years later uh, with the books of Hebrews and Galatians and Romans, <laughs> which hadn't been written yet, and after centuries of theological development to think that this was an obvious matter. The answer to this question is clear, right? Of course, you don't have to keep the ceremonial law of Moses and the Mosaic Covenant either before or after salvation. But again, this certainly... And, and somewhat understandably was a difficult question for these early believers, even for the apostles and the elders. Again, the vast majority of them had been raised as Jews, had been taught from infancy that such laws were essential to belonging to the people of God. They were essential to your identity. But again, this, this was no purely theological matter either. It wasn't an easy matter. It wasn't a purely theological matter. 
It had serious practical consequences. And again, not just for the pastors or for the churches in general, but for everyday individual members of these churches. Their liberties could be trampled on. Their assurance could be shaken, even destroyed. Their relationships could be damaged or destroyed. And their very place in the church threatened by these teachings. And so the church in Antioch wisely and humbly decided that they needed the help of another church and its leaders to help them settle this potentially very dangerous matter. And thus was born associationalism. (laughs) Thus was born associationalism out of a very serious and difficult doctrinal dispute that had very real, practical, and personal implications for each and every one of the members of these churches. And that, I would submit to you, is the primary need for association. It's not the only need or the only purpose of association. I know when we talk about things like the the benefits of association, I mean, we can certainly uh, wax kind of very uh, emotional in that. There's great benefit and joy in this. But what was the need that created, in essence, associationalism in the first place? It was this, the, the original need for the association here in Acts 15 and the need for association that receives, consequently, the biggest emphasis in our confession of faith. Again, look at chapter 26, paragraph 15. What is it primarily that the association exists to do? It's to handle these types of issues. There are important questions that arise from time to time in the life of any church that are beyond the knowledge or the experience of any one pastor or even eldership. And these questions almost always have very practical implications for you, for the member of that church. And so that that leads us naturally, I would say, to the benefits of association. (laughs) If that's the need, then how does the association help in addressing this need? Uh, The benefits of association, again, there are so many. I had to to limit so much of of what I had prepared for tonight. But I want to limit this and, and just highlight two. Uh, primarily because I think they are the two that are most clearly illustrated in this foundational passage. And, And the first of these benefits of association, again, benefits for you, is, is that of protection. Is that of protection? Uh, the doctrinal dispute that led to the convening of the Jerusalem Council, uh, could be seen in, in one of two closely related, kind of from one or two, one of two closely related angles, with one or two uh, kind of different facets to it. It could be seen either as a threat to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, or as a threat to Christian liberty. And I believe it was actually, it was actually both. <laughs> if, uh, but if the argument, the primary argument here was that circumcision is necessary for salvation, then that's clearly a denial of justification by faith alone. And thus it strikes at the very heart of the gospel. But if, as maybe with some of these others, it was more of the idea that Christians once saved are still obligated to keep all of the ceremonial mosaic law, then this is more of an infringement on Christian liberty. Now, I know when we hear these things, we think of one of those as far more significant and dangerous than the other, right? We're, we're Protestants. It's doct- uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And of course, that is central to the gospel. It's central to the Reformed faith. Uh, both, again, are vitally important, but of course, justification by faith alone is kind of the central tenet of the, the Protestant Reformation, right? It's that, that gospel that was recovered by uh, the Reformers or clearly by, by the Reformers. Uh, you could call it the first principle of the Reformation. But do you know what John Owen claimed was the second principle of the Reformation? The second principle, the second most important, most vital doctrine to the Protestant Reformation is that the Pope is the Antichrist. No, I'm teasing. (laughs) 
Although some people have made that argument. I think Crawford Gribben uh, makes that argument. Uh, but not second principle, but that was something that all the, 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 ref, the reformers agreed on. Uh, but no, the, the, John Owen writes that the second principle of the Reformation is the principle of Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Again, how is that defined by our confession? The idea that God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. I think both of those phrases are so important. We normally think of of a violation of Christian liberty being someone imposing upon you something that is contrary to the word of God. But it's also here the the imposition on the conscience of of a believer of something that is just not contained in the word of God, right? It's above and beyond the word of God. It's a doctrine of men made up by men. And of course, you can see how this was central to the Protestant Reformation. Again, how many doctrines of men, how many purely human traditions had the Roman Catholic Church imposed upon the consciences of Christians, Now, those are the the two fundamental principles that are being threatened here. The doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christian liberty. Both vitally, vitally important truths. And from the way that this dispute is then handled by the Jerusalem Council, it seems to have elements of, of both. That their answer in response to this question that is raised is both a confirmation of justification by faith alone. Right? It's purely by, by grace through faith. And it is also an upholding of, of Christian liberty. Of Christian liberty. Uh, Again, we don't have time to get into all the logistics, but there's so many important principles that could be drawn from this. But, but how does the, the Jerusalem council then play out? Well, after hearing the testimonies of Peter and Paul and Barnabas about the genuine conversions of Gentiles, and then after hearing James confirm this doctrine, this truth from the scriptures, from the Old Testament scriptures, about full and equal Gentile inclusion into the people of God, after hearing firsthand testimony and after seeing the, the teaching of Scripture, uh, then the whole council agrees that they should not place a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Right? We cannot bind upon the consciences of God's people uh, these, these extra doctrines. Those things have been abrogated. And and such associational action, I would say, was a divinely provided protection. Again, not just for the churches, but for the individual members of these churches. Again, whose liberty in particular was being threatened by these these Judaizers. Uh, The longer that I am in ministry... Uh, the more I am convinced that one of the pastor's primary duties is to protect and to defend the liberty of the flock. Uh, to, To protect that liberty for which Christ died, which Christ died to secure for his people. To protect that liberty. It's so vital. So many problems within churches really boil down to violations of Christian liberty. And the longer I'm in ministry, the, the, the more convinced I am of the importance of that doctrine and my role as a pastor to protect that liberty, to protect the people that God has placed under my care from violations of that liberty. But also, the longer I'm in ministry, the more convinced I am that the greatest threat, the greatest danger to the liberty of the people that God has placed under my care as a pastor. We want to say the internet, right? (laughs) Of course, you know, what is the greatest threat to the liberty or to the doctrinal correctness, but especially the liberty of our people? No, the the greatest threat to the liberty of God's people, to the people under my care, is is actually me. Um, and I've said that to my people at times. You know, not that I, I pray by God's grace I'm 
in any immediate danger of, of starting to become authoritarian and impose extra doctrines and commandments upon uh, the people in, in my church, the members of my church. But, I mean, obviously that's the case. You know, I'm the one that they're regularly hearing preach and teach, who's giving them counsel in various difficult matters. In essence, I'm the one regularly telling my church and the members of my church, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, binding things on the consciences of, of my people. Now, again, I, I hope and pray that I'm binding on their consciences only what God has already bound on their conscience, that my authority as a pastor is bound by the authority of the word of God. But if I'm incorrect in something, in a doctrinal matter, or if I'm going above and beyond what the scriptures teach, binding on the conscience what God has not, then I am a danger to the members of my church, if that's the case. Of course, certainly, maybe not danger, but I'm in the position to be the greatest threat in this sense. And yet part of their, your added protection in such things is that our church is part of an association. Uh, and again, the longer I'm in ministry, I am a sole elder. I am the only pastor of our church. And the more grateful I am as the years go by that I am part of an association, that I have that protection for myself, but that my people have that protection, even if that means, God forbid, it's protection from me. Uh, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And that is absolutely the, the, the truth within the church. And we as pastors, I would say, should not be threatened by such accountability to an association, but we should welcome it. In humility, we should recognize our need for it. For our sake, yes, but also for our members' sake. I'm not saying this is always the case, but there can be a strong correlation between anti-associationalism and pastoral authoritarianism. There can be a very strong correlation between those two. I'm not saying it's always the case, uh, but some of you, I know, I've talked with, with some of you, I know some of you have experienced such authoritarianism in the past. You've experienced abuses of pastoral authority. You've experienced violations of your Christian liberty from the pulpit, from your pastors. Again, one of the, the, the greatest benefits of associationalism is protection in that sense, broader protection. An association can offer protection against such pastoral authoritarianism. Uh, I, I try, and I've been increasingly trying to do this, to uh, make new members, when I have people in the membership process in our church, to actually make them aware, to inform them of the existence of our association and of how our association works, and even of how this process of protection for them works with an association. Uh, I try to make it a habit, you know, to inform them of, the, the, uh, of our, our confession and what it says. Uh, in paragraph 15 of chapter 26, again, in cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order. Now, what is that? That's pastoral abuse. <laughs> and what is one of the purposes for which the association exists is to, to get help to have some protection, broader protection in such cases where any member, that's you, or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings and censures not agreeable to truth and order, such as was happening by some in the church in Antioch at least, and there were tendencies toward that even in the church at Jerusalem that we see here in Acts 15. Now, having said that, there are two important caveats that are founded upon our confession and that are actually spelled out in our constitution as an association. Uh, the first is, if there are such problems in your church, 
you try to resolve those within your church first, <laughs> right? You don't use this as trying to make an end run around, you know, your, your, your church government. Uh, no, you try go through the biblical process of trying to resolve those matters of appealing to your pastor, appealing to, uh, to the other officers or to the congregation within your church. Uh, so that's one caveat. And then also the other caveat that this protection doesn't mean that an association has the ability or the power to uh, kind of force its decisions upon a church or upon a pastor, to force it to comply. It can only give advice. It can give counsel within these matters. But still, that is a protection. If you think there's, there's something amiss, there's something wrong, that, again, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety, there is protection. Protection of your Christian liberty, if God forbid that is necessary. And again, I, I do try to make our people aware of this, because again, I'm thankful for that, that accountability and that protection for myself, and I desire that for my members as well. So benefit, and that I think is the clearest, most obvious one here in chapter 15. You know, this need that, that served as the basis for the birth of associationalism, the greatest benefit, the clearest benefit that it provides is this protection, again, protection for the individual members of these churches uh, who were in danger of, of being excluded, being trampled upon. Um, closely related to this, a, a second benefit uh, is just that of encouragement. <laughs> encouragement. Again, for the individual members, for the brethren of these churches, and uh, we'll just have to look at this very quickly, but of course the situation begins with, with trouble. It begins with this discouragement, again, with a whole class of new believers, Gentile converts, who are in danger of, of losing their place even with, within the church itself. Uh, it begins with this discouragement. There was a very serious threat to them, but by the end, of course, the situation is very different. Uh, we could look at many of the verses here, but just look at the, the last few verses, verse 30 of this episode at least. So when they were sent off, right, those messengers, Paul and Barnabas and, and Judas and, and Silas, sent back to Antioch, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, right, this, this letter of, of counsel advice from the Jerusalem council. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Again, this, this threat to, to them, to their standing in the church, to their liberty, had been neutralized by the wise counsel of, of the many within this early association. Uh, imagine the relief that must have been felt by these members that would turn into this joy and this encouragement uh, even if some of them were troubled in their own consciences about this matter, now they have this confidence and encouragement of knowing that many counselors had reached agreement. And even further, in the language of this letter itself, claiming probably something that we would be reticent uh, to, to claim nowadays, but even the confirmation that through the acting of the association, the will and direction of the Holy Spirit itself had been made known. Uh, right? That's, that's what they say. You know, it, they, this phrase, it seemed good to us throughout this. I think Dr. James Renahan has made a, a good argument that this is actually indicates voting, right? How do you determine that it seemed good to all of them? Uh, and even the language itself is used in, in other places in, in ancient Greek to talk about the process of, of voting. But, but look, if, if that's the case, look at what they claim in their letter, and I think rightfully so, uh, in uh, verse 28, it says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And he says this decision, we can claim, yeah, it seemed good to all of us, which is encouraging this multitude of, of godly counselors, but they can say even in that, the Holy Spirit himself has made his will and his direction in this matter known. And again, that fits with what the book of Acts is. It's, it's what Jesus continues to do and to teach by his Spirit in and through his church. That in some of these matters where maybe there's not clear direction from Christ or from the Holy Spirit, 
this is how Christ continues to direct and to guide his church. Uh, it, it's, it's quite high language, but again, an encouragement to these people to know now, yes, uh, we have this, well, this sense of vindication. We have this protection of our liberty. And again, it also led to greater unity and peace, not just within an individual church, as it certainly did within Antioch and within Jerusalem, but even between these churches. Because again, this wasn't just these two churches. The letter goes out to the churches of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, all of which also had Gentile believers who were obviously very interested in this matter. And uh, what do we read in verse 33? Uh, well, 32, and Judas and Silas, again, two of the messengers from the church in Jerusalem who came back with Paul and Barnabas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Right? Encouragement and in that unity and peace. Uh, and that is a great blessing. A great encouragement. It's one of the, the encouragements of this association. Uh, even just a, a, a sister that I was talking to very, very briefly right as I came in the door tonight said this is what she enjoys and appreciates about these quarterly gatherings. It's just the encouragement of, yeah, knowing we're not alone. We're not isolated. We're not idiosyncratic. We're not crazy. <laughs> there are, maybe many other evangelicals around us might think so, but, but look, here we have this confirmation in the, the multitude of, of counselors and the agreement and unity that we have in these essential truths. Well, again, so much more could be said about the benefits of associationalism, but I think the two primary ones that come from this foundational text on associationalism for you, for the individual church member, is protection and encouragement. It's encouragement, especially that comes through that protection, working in association as it is intended by Christ to operate. We've seen the need, we've seen the benefits of association for you uh, we need to end, and I'll end rather briefly with, uh, of course, when you talk about benefits, there are never benefits without attendant responsibilities. Uh, so we've asked, what can your association do for you? Uh, now we ask, what can you do for your association? And so we'll conclude with two, two brief, again, we could add these, but the two that I think most clearly here and in our confession, uh, the responsibilities of association for you. Again, just to, to look at our confession in, in paragraph 14, it says, as each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it. Uh, they ought to have association. Uh, but look at that. That responsibility that it talks about is for each church but it's also for all of the members of each church who have this responsibility. And what's the first one that's mentioned here? To pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. Now, again, I'll, I'll admit in, uh, in Acts 15, we don't directly see an example or an, in, an injunction upon the members of these churches, the brethren, to pray for this council, for this associational action. I think we're on pretty safe grounds to assume that they did. <laughs> if you know anything about the book of Acts and you see how constantly all of the, the people of the churches are in prayer, devoting themselves to prayer, that in a matter such as this, with such important doctrinal and practical consequences for individual members themselves, they would have been upholding this counsel, this action in prayer. Uh, but the, the proof texts that are given for us in the confession, uh, it's Ephesians 6.18, where, interesting enough, again, in, after the, the whole uh, Paul's discussion of the, the, um, uh, the armor, uh, the spiritual armor, uh, he says, praying for all the saints. Right? And, that's interesting. and that's an instructive language. Now, Paul, normally, if he was talking about your relationship to other members in your church, would say, pray for one another. But he doesn't. He says, pray for all the saints. <laughs> pray for all the saints. Uh, the other proof text is one that we've already read tonight from Psalm 122. 
pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? For the peace, for the security, for uh, the well-being and the unity of God's people, of the church. Yes, as our individual churches, but also the churches, uh, other churches and our churches together as, as a whole. I think especially when we know that things like this are happening. And, and by the way, I don't want to worry any of you and think, why is he talking about all of this? Is there some big looming uh, conflict within our association? No, there's nothing going on like that, at least that I know of. Uh, but uh, again, just to encourage us, what is the benefit of, for me individually as a church? And now what are my responsibilities? I think especially if and when you know that some significant doctrinal or practical matters are going to be discussed by the messengers of the churches in an association gathering, We need to be in prayer. But even when there's not anything that we know, we need to be praying for one another, for our churches, for our association as a whole. Again, peace and and purity within the church are not things to be taken for granted. They are things that have to be defended. They are things that have to be labored for. They are things that have to be prayed for because ultimately they can only come by the power of Christ and uh, in his Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We need to be praying for our own churches, but also for our sister churches as well. In the book of Acts, you see, you don't see uh, things directly attributed to Satan and to his forces very often. But you see in this early church, different attacks by the enemy. And they begin early on as kind of external threats of, of physical persecution but those don't work. Uh, They only spread the church. And so you then see these subtler internal attacks, attacks on the unity of the church, attacks on the doctrinal purity of the church. And that certainly is, is part of what's behind this doctrinal practical dispute in Acts 15 as well. So we need to pray need to pray for our association, for all the churches, how much more than for the churches with whom we have so much in common and are in in official communion. And then I'll also mention another responsibility uh, with relationship to the association for you. And bear with me a moment, this might strike you as strange, but it has to do with your choice of messengers, with your choice of messengers. Uh, Now we see here, uh, this is regularly what happens, you know, the the church itself, the brethren, the members of the church are choosing and appointing whom they will send to this council and who will then represent them and in essence vote on their behalf. And, And that was obviously a very important decision to make. There was so much at stake here for their own individual spiritual well-being that this had to be taken seriously. And I would urge all of us to do this as, as well. Now, ordinarily, as our association works, the messengers, we, we don't vote every time, as we don't vote as a church, every time there is going to be a messengers meeting, uh, okay, well, we're going to send this person and that person. Normally, it's the pastors of our churches, the officers of our churches. That's how it's spelled out in our constitution. It normally works that way. But that really just kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit. Uh, you need to be very wise very prudent and very prayerful in choosing your pastors, in choosing your officers. Uh, Again, these are those who are going to be representing you and taking associational action on your behalf. And this is is so important. Now, again, I don't have any congregation or any pastor in mind. You've done a good job. We have wonderful pastors with our association. I praise God for each and every one of them. But again, if our association is going to continue to operate as it ought to be, uh, we need to have the right men in those positions of representing our churches. And this is a serious and important responsibility. Lay hands quickly on no one. Uh, Take the, the instructions in the word of God for the qualifications of elders and deacons very seriously. Be prayerful about that when it comes time to vote on officers within your church. Again, to to quote Owen, uh, he talks about the evaluation and the selection of 
the pastors of a church, which again, our confession says they're appointed by the common suffrage of the church, by, by voting, by the congregation, by the members of the church. But Owen writes that the evaluation and selection of its pastors, of a church's pastors, and this is where the quotation begins. He says, that is the chief trust that the Lord Christ hath committed unto his churches. If they are negligent herein, or if at all adventures they will impose an officer in his house upon him without satisfaction of his meekness upon, duty, uh, upon due inquiry, right, that he's qualified, says if they do this, it is a great dishonor unto him, unto God, and provocation of him. But then he says, herein principally, right, in the evaluation and the selection of, of pastors, herein principally are churches made the overseers of their own purity and edification. Uh, right, if, if you choose a Judaizer <laughs> as a pastor, then you shouldn't be surprised when your liberties are, are being infringed upon. Again, we need to take this responsibility seriously. I know that seems kind of like a strange application to make from it, but it's one that I see here. And again, we, we don't often think of this. Sometimes I fear in these important matters, uh, church members, we can just kind of rubber stamp things. It's like, oh, well, yeah, the current pastors have, uh, have, have suggested this guy. But no, it's, it's incumbent upon the members of the church, individual members, to be, as Owen says it here, the, the overseers of their own purity and edification and having properly qualified men, godly men. I would say, especially as we see uh, the need for this, humble men who are in positions uh, of, of that authority within our churches, who will not view accountability within an association as a threat to them, but rejoice in it, welcome it, as a protection for them and for you. Uh, something to consider. Well, again, so much more could be said about the benefits of association, the, the responsibilities of association, but at least these for you. There is indeed great value in, great benefit from a properly functioning association. And I am so thankful that we have such an association here. But even for you, not just for your pastors, but for you, uh, such an association can be a source of protection if and when needed and a source of great encouragement. And again, two ways that you can be a blessing to the association in return. Pray for your association and the sister churches and the messengers as they meet and choose pastors well. <laughs> choose your messengers well. And may God indeed, well, may Christ indeed continue to act and to teach by his spirit in and through his church. May God indeed bless our association, our churches, our pastors, and all of our members, all of you, for years to come, as our confession puts it, for our peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Amen.